Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am one half of your hosting dream team. My name is Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell, the other half of that hosting dream team. Today's topic concerns something that seems to be coming up with more regularity now, and that is motions to withdraw a guilty plea. That's right. We're going to talk about motions to withdraw a guilty plea, which have become really more prevalent since after the Supreme Court's decision in Collier. Yeah, let's dive in, Wade. First, let's talk about the Uniform Superior Court rule that governs motions to withdraw guilty pleas. So we're looking at Uniform Superior Court Rule 33.12. There's an A and a B. A says, after sentence is pronounced, the judge should allow the defendant to withdraw a guilty plea or nolo contendere plea whenever the defendant, upon a timely motion to withdraw, proves that withdrawal is necessary to correct a manifest injustice. Dun, dun, dun. And then B in the absence of a showing that withdrawal is necessary to correct a manifest injustice, dun, dun, dun. a defendant may not withdraw a plea of guilty or nolo contendere as a matter of right once that sentence has been pronounced by the judge. Now, Tane, there's a lot in there. It doesn't sound like it, but there's three or four, I guess, elements that we need to break out. And the first one's timeliness. When does a motion to withdraw a guilty plea, it has to be filed, Tane? Within the same term of court. Of? Same the, term of court of? When the plea was entered. When the sentence was written, sentence was filed with the clerk? Well, yeah. Come right. on now. Sorry. Sorry, man. Sorry. All right. So the the motion has to be filed in the same term of court. Now, Tame, it, it, some people have multiple different counties in their circuit. And some mm-hmm. of those counties have different terms of court. If you were looking for your term of court, What's that statute that you would look for to find all the different terms of court all over the state? Uh, OCGA section 15-6-3, Wade? That's the one. I'm glad you wrote that down because I was searching my brain. (laughs) When that term of court has expired, Tane, where that defendant was sentenced and he was sentenced on a guilty plea, that the trial court actually lacks jurisdiction to allow the withdrawal of a plea. So in other words, once that term of court is over, has expired, the only available means for an, a, a defendant or appellant to withdraw their plea is through a habeas corpus proceeding. That's right. And I would recommend for the practitioners out there, for you judges, have a standard order that says, you know, this is after the term of court has expired in which this uh, plea uh, was entered and the uh, sentence was was filed with the clerk and therefore the court lacks jurisdiction. And and, and just have that ready because you're going to get these on a regular basis. And Tane, we've talked about that lack of jurisdiction issue. For example, why don't you just go to magistrate court and get your divorce filed and, and signed? Because magistrate court doesn't have jurisdiction over divorce actions, Wade. And so can you confer? It is a can you, subject matter jurisdiction issue. Can you give them? Can you confer? Can you waive jurisdictional objections? Wade, we're superior court judges. We can do anything, right? No. It's right there in the name. Yeah, what, okay. We. <laughs> wow, you're going to get us in a lot of trouble with a lot of our friends. <laughs> Listen, you can't waive. I was just waive, joking. You can't waive jurisdiction. You can't right. give a court jurisdiction that doesn't have jurisdiction. In and fact, so lack of jurisdiction saying, 
lack of jurisdiction can be raised for the first time on appeal. I it mean, can. subject it's matter a void jurisdiction order. is, uh-huh. yeah. So basically, when it says you don't have jurisdiction, that means you can't do anything with that. If the term has expired, you can't kind of consider it. You're done. You're out. The you only way no the defendant, satisfaction. <laughs> the only way the defendant can pursue that is through habeas corpus proceedings. Now, Tane, what if that sentence was void? What if you what if you imposed a sentence for a crime that has a maximum sentence of, of 10 years and you imposed a 20-year sentence? That's right. a that's a little different, right? It is. The trial court retains jurisdiction to correct a void sentence at any time. So if you do something that, you know, basically is kind of squirrely um, and it and it makes the sentence a void sentence, then, yeah, you can go back and correct that. You know, the law actually says a void sentence is a legal nullity. And so that whole same term of court conversation is irrelevant because what you did is a nothing. It didn't happen. So it could be filed essentially forever. If it's a void sentence. That's right. And folks, let me just remind you too, there are a bunch of cases cited on these points uh, in the outline and you can find that at goodjudgepod.com, our website. Yeah. This this outline is chock full of sites. So it is now Tane, the statute, I guess the, the uniform rule says that it applies to guilty pleas and applies to no low pleas. But I know you have regularly presided over a different type of plea. Would it apply to an Alford plea? Yeah, sure it would, because an Alford plea is considered a guilty plea. And if you want to know case sites, that that particular case is called Williams versus the state, 337 Georgia Appeals, 381, 2016 case. But all of this is in the outline. So don't think that we're just blowing through these legal principles and leaving you hanging where you might find it. We we actually have a an outline just for this taint. I have a practice point. I have a thing I'm working on. And tell me if this makes sense to you. Sure. I want a binder of miscellaneous law. It seems I always need to to cite. For example, okay. the standard in a motion for summary judgment. And right. what is the cite? The the pro se filings are a nullity. If, rep- if being filed while, while represented by counsel, cite. Mm-hmm. So that when I'm responding to jail mail, do you get jail mail, Tang? <laughs> yes, I do, Wade. Any pro se filings that are made while a defendant is represented by counsel is to be treated, again, as a legal nullity and have no force or effect. That's the White case, 302 Georgia 315, and it cited another case, Tolbert versus Toole, 296 Georgia 357. I mean, that's something it seems, especially when it comes to jail mail, that I always need to put at my fingertips and I never can seem to find. Yeah, you know, Wade, my life is such that if it weren't for jail mail, I'd have no mail at all. So, you know, I I, I like a good handwritten letter stamped. with. I'll tell you a quick story. Our entire uh, courthouse got shut down for a few hours one day because uh, an envelope appeared in the clerk's office with a white powdery substance on it. Everybody's kind of, you know, understandably freaked out. And um, they came back into the courthouse a couple hours later and said, y'all can all come back in. We figured out it was a jail mail letter that the inmate had sealed with toothpaste because <laughs> the glue on his envelope had dried up. And so there was some Colgate in there. Not For some reason, that reminded me of that scene from Caddyshack where Bill Murray cleans out the pool and then at the end goes, 
baby Ruth. Uh, but that that is a total complete aside. And I'm sorry to our listeners for even bringing that up. But when you talk about jail mail, it comes to mind. All right. Let's talk about appointment of counsel and hearing requirements, Wade. You got to appoint one. Do you have to appoint somebody to pursue a motion to withdraw plea, Tang? I don't know the answer to that, Wade. Well, you could get our outline and find that the Williams case says the defendant is entitled to appointed counsel in connection with a motion to withdraw a guilty plea. Now, if the thing is a nullity, in other words, it was filed while represented, or it's an out-of-time appeal, it wasn't filed within the same term of court, you would have no entitlement to counsel. You do have entitlement to counsel, though, if it was a timely filed motion, regardless of its merit or whatever you do have an entitlement to that. But but that's a great point, Wade, because it, it, it behooves us when you see one of these come in to just take a look at it and see if it meets the first basic requirements before you go off and say, oh, we got to schedule it for a hearing. We got to appoint counsel. And you usually have to schedule it for a hearing because the appellate court needs to see your, basically show your math, show your work. And that's the Bahani case or Bonnie case, B-A-N-H-I versus the state, again, cited in our outline. Now, Tane, what is the standard? We've got a timely we've got a timely motion filed, and it was filed by either counsel or or if the if counsel had already withdrawn by the defendant, whatever. If the defendant was pro se, or sorry, self represented, then it's filed. But let's just assume we have a timely motion. Okay, what's the yeah. standard that's applicable to a motion to withdraw a guilty plea. What's the legal standard you have to evaluate it by? Yeah, sure. So the standard in those cases, as I said before, or as we said before, was manifest injustice. Dun, dun, dun. And the, the actual language of the case says this. It says, after sentencing, the decision on a motion to withdraw a guilty plea is within the trial court's discretion and withdrawal of the plea is allowed only when necessary to correct a manifest injustice. And that's the Allen versus State case at 333 Georgia Appeals 853. Um but but that sort of begs the question, Wade. Okay, we know what the standard is. What in the world does manifest injustice dun 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 mean? So, are you going to do the dun 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 every time we say it? I'm going to try. Okay. Yeah, I'm absolutely going to try. So that's a phrase. Because my understanding is in podcasting, consistency is is very important. So yes. But but reading law during a podcast is not awesome. That is so true. Although reading a statute during a podcast, every time we do that, an angel gets its wings. But go every ahead. Every time Blake. a statute is cited, an angel gets his wings. I'm having fun with this whole sound effect thing. I uh, know, man. I'm not going to let you touch those buttons anymore. But what is manifest in, uh, injustice, Wade? Tell us. By its very definition, it's going to have to vary a little bit case by case because there's not a certain set of rules that would apply to someone who's incompetent or someone who's alleging their trial counsel was ineffective or somebody who couldn't speak English or somebody. There's, there's lots of it, different issues. Basically it is said that for instance, where a defendant is denied effective assistance of counsel or the guilty plea was entered involuntarily and without an understanding of the nature of the charges that's going to be a manifest injustice. And that's the gay versus state case, 342 Georgia Appeals, 242. That's a lot better than what I was afraid you were going to say, because I was afraid you were going to define it by saying that justice, which is manifest, that injustice, which is manifest. And I was like, that's not going to help me, Wade. But no, that's a, that, makes, that makes a lot more sense. So when, once a guilty plea is validly challenged, Tane, whose burden is it 
to initially prove that, no, no, the, the plea was knowingly and voluntarily entered. The state has to prove that, Wade. And they actually have that initial burden to prove that it was knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily, and with an understanding of the nature of the charges and the consequences of entering that plea. Now, Tane, I'm not being funny. Do y'all have a written finding by the judge that at the plea you say, I, you know, having State versus Smith or whatever case number, having heard all of this, I find that the plea was entered knowingly, voluntarily, with a full understanding of all of that? Not only do we have that, um, I also say it on the record. Once they've finished answering all the questions that I'm going to be asking them about the plea, uh, and before they enter it, um, I say that and say, and so therefore I will allow you to enter it as a written plea on the court's record, and then I let them sign the plea. You know, it's so interesting because then it's almost a segue, Tane. Amazing to to the Voyles case. Can you just read that quote right quick? I know it's. I know somebody's going to get wings, or it's not awesome. But how about reading that case that that site? I guess the quote. Sure. I guess sure. From, the court of the uh, yeah, sure. The court of appeals in Voyles versus Estate at two sixty six Georgia Appeals seven thirty eight said. State may meet its burden of showing that guilty plea which defendant seeks to withdraw was intelligently and voluntarily entered in two ways. Number one, showing on the record of the guilty plea hearing that the defendant was cognizant of all the rights he was waiving and possible consequences of the plea. Or two, filling silent record by use of extrinsic evidence that affirmatively shows that guilty plea was knowing and voluntary. And, and basically what they're saying there is, it's either going to be right there on the record and, and he's answered questions and, and, and indicated that he's doing it knowingly and, and voluntarily, or you can take some things like the written documents that say certain things about his, its voluntariness and his understanding thereof or her understanding thereof and, uh, and use that. E- either one of those will suffice. I've, I have always taken the position, Tane, when talking to judges that I don't think it is ever sufficient to do one or the other. I you think like the both. belt and suspenders approach. Is I that do. right, way? I would hate I to too. lose a, a plea. You know what I mean? I would yeah. hate for everybody five and ten years later to have to come back and find witnesses and do the, all that again because I got, I don't know, I had somewhere to be. So I try really <laughs> exactly. hard to do both, make that record and use a written form to recognize where the defendant in consultation with counsel can go over that form. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform and tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership thanks and now back to our studio audience that ineffective assistance thing tane that's something we talk about early at njo when we're talking to new judges new judge orientation 
Yeah. That's something we talk about there. We talk about throughout pretty much all the criminal law because it sort of rears its ugly head out there that in, in addition to whatever the lawyers may say during a hearing, you always are, as a judge, cognizant, I guess, that you're also going to have to see if the record supports or refutes a claim of ineffective assistance. Now, Tane, we talked about the state's burden initially of proving the plea was freely and voluntarily made, et cetera. Who has the burden of proving ineffective assistance? Yeah, the defendant does. And, and of course, that makes sense because uh, the defendant is essentially saying, hey, I came in here, I didn't get representation, and there's nothing there's nothing for the state to prove there, essentially. I mean, it would be like trying to prove a negative, you know, like, nah, see how effective this guy was. Uh, you know, that would be, that would be hard to do. So um, yeah, the, the burden in that situation is naturally on the defendant. You know, in a lot of the jail mail, you're going to get judges, you're going to see where people say, you see, I've always claimed I wasn't the shooter. I wasn't there. I didn't have a gun, wrong guy, whatever. And the cases make it clear, clear that, Judge, that's up to you. The credibility determinations, you don't have to accept any of them as true. There's no presumption that the defendant is telling the truth or not telling the truth. You don't start with any of that. You make credibility determinations, and they sort of leave it in your purview, I guess, for lack of a better word, that you are the one that, that can evaluate the people, see them, and sort of make an analysis of whether or not they were the shooter, weren't the shooter, or whether there was sufficient evidence to establish that there was, regardless of what they admit, so to speak. Right. Now, Tane, we have sites in here to a lot of cases, particularly this Berrien case, which is 300 Georgia 489, a 2017 case, it cites a bunch of other cases. But basically, it, it's, it, it comes back to that whole credibility analysis, and it, and it sort of leaves that with the judge. Now, Tane, we have a few specific examples in our paper and that's going to be found at goodjudgepod.com. Um, remember, Tane, we talked about in, when we discussed pleas, we talked about criminal pleas and how to take a plea, et cetera, in a prior yes, episode. We talked about you've got to tell the defendant his rights or her rights concerning direct consequences of the plea. Right. You didn't really have to about indirect consequences of the plea. Remember that? I do. And sort of that comes back and rears its little ugly head here where it says that the trial court must correctly advise the defendant as to the, the direct consequences of entering the plea, which they define as they may be described as those within the sentencing authority of the trial court, as opposed to the many other consequences to a defendant that may result from a criminal conviction. So as you go through and you advise the, the defendant of his or her rights, it's important that you make a record, Tane. And, and one of the things that we pointed to way back when and I'm sorry, I'm kind of skipping forward. There is a uniform superior court rule that specifically tells you where it, the rights you need to go over. Now, it's not sufficient in and of itself, right? but it helps you a great deal. Make sure that you don't overlook something. And I will tell you that that's uniform superior court rule 33.8. And that... that <laughs> You'll get the biggest trees in the forest. You won't get them all. 
but between that and a written waiver and maybe listening to a prior episode of this podcast, you should be in good or shape. Two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause as Wade said that, that uniform superior court rule has sort of the, the bedrock rights that you're supposed to go over, but there've been subsequent cases, even since that um, rule was written that say, yeah, but you really need to talk about some other things too. Things like, uh, uh, consequences of uh, uh, of deportation and and those sorts of things relating to 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 people's immigration status. So, Tane, these failure to go over all the potential consequences is really problematic when you have an open plea when there's not a plea agreement where right. you could have sentenced anywhere within the statutory authority. And you see a lot of cases where the the rights that were discussed probably get a closer examination by the appellate court when there wasn't a negotiated plea as a part of the arrangement. And, you know, Tane, I don't know about you, but there are times, I swear, I have really good lawyers who appear in front of me, but occasionally we don't know what the maximum sentence is based upon these facts. And we have to go break open books and we have to put all of that on the record. What would happen if you, is it an automatic loser if you, told the defendant the wrong potential maximum sentence that you're no, going to get reversed? No, it, it's not automatic, um, but it's also not good. So <laughs> you've got to be really careful uh, what you're doing. But, but no, it's, it, it's not an automatic reversal if you, if you do that. So, Tane, what about where a defendant says or claims he or she was incompetent at the time that plea was entered? Is that an automatic that if you don't have a mental evaluation, it gets reversed? No, definitely not. I mean, again, that's an evaluation that the court makes. It's one of the reasons that that I go ahead and say something to the effect at the conclusion of the plea based upon I, I, my my usual words are based upon my observations of the defendant, your, based upon my, your responses to my questions and my observations of you during this proceeding, I find that your plea is being freely, knowingly and voluntarily entered. It's just a way of me confirming on the record that I'm watching the demeanor of the defendant. He appears to be sane and rational and reasonable and and knows what he's doing. And it's it's kind of a hint to the to the appellate court that, yeah, I was I was paying attention to the to the defendant's demeanor and he appears to be competent to me. And there's a case that we cite called Allen versus the state three thirty three Georgia Appeals eight five three. Don't write it down. Mm-hmm. Don't have a wreck trying to find a pen. It's in our outline. But they said at goodjudgepod.com where there was a mental evaluation that found the defendant competent and the the plea colloquy between the court and the defendant showed that the defendant was oriented as to time, place and person. And then they went through all the other things that were asked and that the defendant free completely or obviously understood sort of where he was at and and what was happening. Yeah. And think about that. I mean, the complexities of the questions that we are asking during that plea colloquy, and and particularly if your plea colloquy, and I hope all of yours do, require the defendant to give some yes answers and some no answers um, so that, you know, he's clearly not or she's clearly not just saying yes, 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 yes. Um, to the answer to the question, um, it's pretty complicated. And so, you know, you do have an ability to look at a cold record there and say, well, I mean, at least this person understood that they were to give an answer here and, you know, a different kind of answer here. Like, you know, how old are you? That's, you know, that's numbers. That's What not kind of work no. do you typically do? Yeah. They, 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 they've got to do something. Did, 
yeah, how far did you go in school? I mean, we're asking those kinds of questions in addition to the yes, no questions. All right, Tane, this sort of brings me to deal with Collier and, and I think it's shock it. Are you okay with shock it being the pronunciation? Shock it. Um, we previously did an episode all about or, Collier, or which or shoik it. See, don't do that. You're probably that's probably exactly what it is. Just, I'm just messing with you, man. Go we ahead. previously recorded an episode dealing with Collier. You remember that? I do. And it's pretty awesome if if I, if I do say so myself because it was right it, it, when it was hot off the off the presses. Timely. Now let's do a quick summary. Collier. It allows for a hearing on whether the plea counsel advised the defendant of his or her right to file an appeal from a guilty plea. And if the record shows that the lawyer did not tell the defendant he or she had that right, the trial court should grant an out-of-time appeal. In other words, it's oversimplification, but that's sort of a summary of Collier. It really flipped a lot of prior case law. Yeah. And so I know you're not surprised, Tane, but some defendants have gotten wind of that Collier says some stuff. And so we have gotten exponentially more jail mail lately where people are filing motions for appeals and to withdraw pleas and all of that stuff. And frankly, Tane, the Supreme Court has sort of acknowledged that they they painted with a pretty broad brush in Collier. And yeah. And 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 as you said, Wade, one of the results of that 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 they don't necessarily see is that I don't know what the current currency is in prison. It was cigarettes for a while. And, you know, then I don't know, candy or something. I don't know, but, but, but whatever it is now, a lot of that is being spent paying Scrivener's to write motions to withdraw pleas based on failure to uh, advise of right to withdraw or to appeal uh, guilty pleas. And a Supreme, lot of that is being spent right now. The Supreme Court's been walking that back a lot lately. Some of those cases are finally maturing because Collier was decided in 19, so they're kind of maturing now and coming before the court again in, in 21 and 22. Start, sort of starting with a case called Kelly, 311 Georgia 827, and they they sort of realized they've got to start walking that back because what they had done is they had invoked, for lack of a better word, some of the other post-conviction case law that had said, if you have a right to, to an out-of-time appeal, you have a right to file a motion for new trial. In fact, Justice Peterson sort of took himself to task, honestly, in the Shockett decision, which is a really new decision, at 865 Southeast 2nd, 170. There's not even a Georgia site on it yet from November of 21, where Justice Peterson said that some of the language in Collier, and particularly in that pesky little concurring opinion authored by Justice Peterson, that it needed to be uh, clarified, I think was the word. It needed to be clarified. And in that in that concurring opinion, Justice Peterson said there by logical extension, you ought to be you ought to have a renewed right to file a motion to withdraw plea if you in fact have a motion you have the right to file an out of time appeal. So basically the whole post conviction process starts anew was the word mm-hmm. or phrase that they were using. In Shockett, they the Justice Peterson said no, that's not he wrote who wrote for the majority 
But I'm telling you, Tane, there was a couple of pretty strong dissenting opinions that basically said, we think that that was what we meant to do. That if you're going to have a right to file an out-of-time appeal, you have a a renewed right to file a motion to withdraw a plea. Tane, those justices called this a tangled mess of law. Yes. And they said, we might need to untangle this, but we don't need to do it in this case. Right. And, and, and those are always those red flag cases that say to us, stay tuned, because we know something else is coming. And as you pointed out, the conclusion of Shockett says, for these reasons, we hold today that a granted motion for out of time appeal does not confer a right to file an otherwise untimely motion for withdrawal of, of a guilty plea. So just understand that's the state of the law right now. But keep keep watching your uh, your 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 you know advance sheets or whatever you do to keep up with the uh, current law because you're right. This is something that um, that they're gonna they're gonna address further. There's no doubt in my mind. So Tane, let's recap what we've learned today. Didn't they do that in Captain it. Kangaroo where we recapped the the letters of the day? Or I guess that's Sesame Street, isn't it? I think you're talking. Yeah, I think you're talking about Sesame Street. So first thing we learned today is a motion. Do you want me to do my? Do you want me to do my Elmo impression? If you want, wait, I can do that. You do it when you say this next part, okay? Okay. So first, a motion to withdraw a guilty plea must be filed in the same term of court as the one that was in existence when the plea was entered. But if the motion is not timely filed, the defendant must seek relief via habeas corpus and not via out-of-time filing. Now, I want, I want y'all Everybody to understand. Everybody knows that. I wish you could see this. He is doing this with no, no, you know, little thing you spit into or a thing you bite on or a little film in front of his face. He this just is, does this. Wait, this is just a God-given talent. This is not something that you affect through some sort of mechanized, uh, you know, uh, what is that thing the singers use now? The note I, I don't know this this is all this is all natural this is god giving auto tune it's auto-tune. not an auto tune it's not an auto tune second anyway what's the second thing second thing we've learned today if a motion is timely filed the state has the burden of proving that the plea was knowingly and voluntarily entered you may want to listen to our episode on guilty pleas and uniform superior court rule 33.8 ensures that the judge addresses all of the appropriate issues. And we discussed all of the issues associated with accepting a guilty plea in that other episode. Finally, we learned today merely because a defendant can late file a motion to appeal from a guilty plea. If it is established that the plea counsel did not advise the defendant of that right to appeal and gave him the 30 day limit. That does not mean that the defendant can also then late file a motion to withdraw his or her plea. Yeah, the Shockett case is really new law. I mean, that law is so new, it's still got the tags on it. So, um, And it did have those two dissenting opinions. And so all of the opinions, those dissents uh, reference the tangled mess of Georgia law related to the post-conviction relief. So again, it seems like this may prove to be an ongoing conversation. So, well, folks, as always, we hope that this has been helpful to you in your daily practice. If you'd like more information, don't forget to check our website at goodjudgepod.com, where we will post all of these episode notes and all the other episode notes that we have. 
including the citations to authority. That's right. And also, don't forget to reach out to us if you want to <laughs> at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always available to answer questions or get suggestions for another episode. So with that, Tane, we'll wrap this up. I'm Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell. Insert funny thing. Tane, you're supposed to say something funny, not read that. I thought it was funny to read that. Okay. Another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.